Hello, my name is Ricky Hellier and I'm a lecturer at Cardiff University School of Healthcare Sciences and welcome to Behind the Health Statistic. In this episode, I'll be speaking to Terence Cannon from the UK Sepsis Trust and Dr Paul Morgan, who's a critical care consultant. So later on in the podcast, Paul will go into a bit more depth about what sepsis is. But essentially, it's an overreaction of the body's fight against infection. And that infection could be a fungus, it could be a bacteria, it could be a virus. Um, This overreaction ends up causing damage to our tissues and damage to our organs. And patients become really, really unwell and can go into organ failure and even die. If spotted early enough, sepsis can be quite treatable. But unfortunately, it still kills around about 48,000 people in the UK alone each year. So now over to Terence, who's going to tell us his story. So hiya, I'm here with Terence Cannon from the UK Sepsis Trust. Hiya Terence, how are you? I'm very well, Ricky, how are you? Yeah, good, thank you, good, thanks. Thank you for agreeing to sort of share your story with us. Uh, with us. Um, so yeah, can you just tell us, uh, yeah, just... Speak away. Let, tell us your story. Okay, well, um, as you say, my name is Terence. Um, I now um, work as a, as, a, as a head of communities with the UK Sepsis Trust. Um, but I didn't always do that. I used to live, live in, in London doing something very interesting, working in, in, in a bank um, and, and, until I uh, um, came into uh, contact or had an experience with sepsis. So I guess you just want me to talk to you about that and... Uh, and tell you why I'm involved in doing what I'm doing now. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. If you can, please. Yeah. Okay, so um, it's 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 not a story about me. Although I'm involved in it, it's more of a story about my brother. Um, my brother was a a 41 year old man, married happily married with a three year old daughter, Sophie, married to Manuela, uh, living in London and working for uh, doing some IT at a law firm, and. Uh, Unfortunately, I, you know, at, at that time we had we had uh, we'd never ever heard of, of the term sepsis, which is really, you know, which, you know, in hindsight, is quite remarkable. Given that we both travelled a lot, um, you know, we were very uh, we were very similar in age, eighteen months apart. We've both been to universities, we've been educated, you know, um, but we never heard of that. And in fact, the, the first time I'd I'd, um, I'd heard or seen even seen the word sepsis, unfortunately, was on my my brother's death certificate. Um, and I'll tell you uh, how how that all unfolded and, and the timeline uh, around um, Mark. And, and you know, I think it's important to recognise in the, the timeline and refer to the timeline because it's, it's actually very, very quick, uh, the way this, 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 this worked out and played out. So, um, and how many hands Mark actually went through, uh, in, through throughout the experience. So it, it, the, the story begins um, back in, it was uh, end of May uh, 2012, so come up to 10 years now. Um, it feels like, you know, sometimes much longer and sometimes much less, but um, it, it was the end of May and it was my brother's wedding anniversary. Uh, so him and Manuela and, and, and Sophie went out for something to eat in Greenwich in southeast London where, where, where they were living. And uh, this was on, on the Friday night. On the Saturday, all three of them had what they thought was a tummy bug. Um, you know, Manuela had a little bit of a dicky tummy. So did so did um, Sophie and so did my brother. So they just thought, you know, naturally thought, We've been for a meal last night. That must be what it is. Um, and uh, and on the Sunday, they they were they were fine. Um, you know, my brother not so much. Um, so much so, you know, he was a bit ill overnight on the Sunday. And on the Monday, he was still a bit unwell. He's a bit of sickness, bit of you know, bit of vomiting, a bit of diarrhea. 
Um, so he went to a, an NHS walk-in centre in London, which is not an uncommon thing to do in London. You know, there's lots of them around. There's easy access to healthcare to see a health professional quickly without having to bother with appointments and things. So he um, he saw a, a, a nurse and he described his symptoms, and she said, "You probably have gastric flu. Uh, go home, rest up." Um, you know, keep your fluids up, take some paracetamol if you need them, but nothing to worry about really, you know, give yourself a few days and you should be fine. Um, so he, he went home, he was still overnight on, on the, uh, ill overnight on the, on the, on the, on the, on the Monday into Tuesday. So his wife, I think, just said, look, just to be on the safe side, you know, go and see the doctor. You're not getting any better really. So just get yourself checked out. So he did that. He went to the doctor on the, on the Tuesday. Who told him much the same as as the nurse? Really, you probably have gastric flu. Keep your fluids up, paracetamol if you need them. Um, you know, simple foods, but don't really worry about that so much for a couple of days. You know, he was asked by the doctor um, if he'd been anywhere where he could have picked something up, uh, a bug of any virus of any kind. And my brother had uh, he just finished a gym-based triathlon recently so he had been spending a bit of time at the local swimming pool so that was mentioned he said okay well check with your friends wherever see how they are and, you know maybe give them a call but you know you'll be fine give it two or three days and i'll come back to this in a second because i think a lot of this is about uh, um about behaviors uh, in a way and, and including my own later on which obviously will come um it will, it will make sense a bit further down the line but uh my brother went home on on the from the doctors on the Tuesday and, and waited to get better as, as you would do, took the advice he was given. As I said earlier, I, I was living in London myself at this time. And um, I was traveling back to Wales on, on the Thursday morning because it was a family birthday party. And I was going to see my brother on the Wednesday to pick up some presents from him to bring back. So I wasn't going to see him because he was unwell. I didn't even know he was unwell at this point. Um, so when I got there, he explained he had been well for a couple of days uh, he had the runs that he'd put it and a bit of sickness and he looked a little bit washed out you know but then as you'd expect somebody who hadn't really eaten now for probably the best since probably the Friday night and it's Wednesday now so he's a bit low on energy um, but very very much himself and this is important later on as well very much himself I remember we were joking and we were laughing about because uh, his uh, Manuela cooked a nice meal for me which he couldn't eat because he wasn't feeling up to it. We were joking about that, um, but he was very much himself. He's a very quirky person, you know, great personality, and that, that was all there. So I left him on the Wednesday, uh, and I said, "I'll see you after the weekend when, when you know, whatever when I get back from Cardiff, uh, when I was meant to be going on the Thursday morning." And I headed off back to my place in North London. Now, Manuela rang me on the Thursday morning and, and asked me if you know if if I was able to go to the hospital to be with Mark and it wasn't a, a call uh, uh, you know to say you know you have to go he's really unwell but he said Mark had been over you know overnight unwell on, on, on the Wednesday into Thursday and had some really quite severe stomach pains so had gone back to the GP and I don't know we, we don't know how unwell he was overnight because he slept in a separate room that night and um, the reason being he wasn't very well you know Manuela was working next day they had a three-year-old you know Mark by his own admission a horrendous snorer and he didn't want to be the person that kept everybody else up all night. You know? So he slept in a different room. So we don't know how unwell he was, but unwell enough to go back to the GP and seek healthcare for the third time in the best part of a week, which is not really like him to do that. Um, and anyway, he'd gone to the, um, the doctors and he said he'd been continuing to be vomiting. I think there's a bit of his vomit. There was some black bits in his vomit and he had a very bad stomach. So at this point, the 
GP said, I think you should go to A&E. And this is on, so this is on the on the Thursday morning about 10 o'clock. So he, he, um, that's what he did. He went home, picked up a few bits, hopped in a taxi. And he was able to go to A&E at Lewisham General and be there by 12 o'clock mid that day. So Mark was well enough to visit the GP, get himself to the hospital and walk into Lewisham General A&E at midday on the Thursday. And that's when Manuela rang me and said, can you come across? Because I'd rather somebody be with him. And I can't be right now because I have to go somewhere with Sophie for the nursery play or something along those lines. So I said, yes, of course. You know, I'm, I'm not leaving to go back to London just yet. Um, I can come across. I can, you know, I can be your eyes and ears. So that's what she wanted, really. It was my eyes and ears because, you know, it's good to have a second opinion. And my brother's a 41-year-old man who might not tell, you know, the absolute truth to his wife in, in, her, in her experience. Um so I, I left straight away, and not, not because I was concerned. There was no element of concern around this. I left because it was a long journey from North London, where I was, to South East London, where he currently was. So that's why I left straight away. So by the time I got myself organised, I got to Lewisham General at about 2pm. Um, and I went in there into A&E. And for, for me on that day, the place, it was very, very busy, it felt a bit chaotic, um, but that could be normal for them. I don't know. You know, it's a very busy area, mass demographic. I've never been there before. I've never been there since. So I don't know what's normal for them. But for me, it felt a little bit kind of uh, chaotic, but I was out of my comfort zone anyway. I struggled to find him. You know, I, found, I found someone to ask where he was. I found him eventually. And he was, he, he'd been triaged. He was behind, well, I, how I describe it, he was behind the, the curtain, you know, he was behind the screen. Because it was a very busy area. There's lots of people around. And when I, when I found him behind the screen, and this is something that a memory kind of sticks with me, that heading towards a hospital normally, you, know, you feel a bit anxious on your way there, don't you? Because you're not quite sure what's going to confront you. But when you get there, the anxiety normally leaves you because you think, oh, okay, nothing to worry about. This is fine. You know, this is, what's all the fuss about? But on this day when I, I, I walked in, I, could, I couldn't tell what was wrong, but I could tell something wasn't quite right. I, I looked at my brother. He just looked a little bit, Bear in mind, I seen him the night before. So I seen him on the Wednesday night, and it's two p.m. next day, um, and he just looked a little bit agitated, um, a little bit distracted. I would say a bit anxious, and um, he seemed quite wide-eyed. And I asked him how he was doing. He said, "You know, I, I'm kind of, you know, I'm not sure what you're doing here, kind of thing." And I was like, "Well, you know, my mother's asked me to come. Um, are you okay?" He said, "Oh yeah, I've got a bit of pain in my stomach," but he wasn't really, he wasn't really engaging very well. And, uh, and and he was breathing quite not I wouldn't say rapidly at this point, but he he, he he seemed a bit panicky. This is my best non. I'm a lay person. I'm not medical at all. So the language I use will not be medical. Um, so he's panicky to me, right? Um, so enough for me to say to the nurse, "Have you given him any medication?" Because he doesn't quite seem himself. Um, and the nurse said, "No, we've given him a, a bit of morphine um, for his stomach pains." And funny enough, no, not. Too long before, my, my uncle had died of a heart condition. I remember him being on a morphine driver. So the only drug I particularly heard of medically as such that I knew anything about or thought I knew about was morphine. And I thought it was a bit of a sedative type of drug. So I said to the nurse then, um, oh, well, I thought morphine would calm him down. And he seems quite, you know, quite wound up, quite agitated. Is he having any kind of reaction? And she said, no, no, he's fine. And the doctors will come and, and see him now. And she said to my brother, doctors are coming around, don't drink any water. Um, and, and something else she told him not to do, but he did both of those things immediately. I thought, well, is he just being petulant? Or, or is there something else going on? But I didn't know, I'm a lay person. So these are not signals to me. They're just 
behaviors which i find a little bit strange and this strangeness of behavior continued because he was laying on the bed and when he's being examined by the doctor and he was quite big around the midriff by now and i remember that i was stood in the corner of the room while it's behind the curtain while this was going on and the doctor said to him are you normally this size and that's a very kind of like you know yes or no binary you know you either are or you're not um and the answer you expect would be like that but what my brother said was as a response i run a marathon i'm doing a triathlon and i thought that's a strange answer to give to that question why are you behaving like this? I didn't think it meant anything, but I thought that's a strange answer to give. And they didn't, nobody said anything. They just continued the examination. Uh, I wasn't asked any questions or anything. Um, and they said, okay, you think you've got a problem with your gallbladder or a gallstone issue? I'm going to send you for an ultrasound. Um, so you're going to have to get changed, whatever. So I said, yeah, what do we do now? He said, well, he's going to have to get changed into a gown and et cetera. So um, again, don't drink any water or anything. And someone will come and take you down in a bit. So I was chatting to my brother and again, he, he's very distracted. And I said, are you in pain? And he said, I am a bit, which is not like him at all. And I said, are you hot? He said, yeah, I am quite hot. And I said, Can I cool you down? So he even let me cool him down. Again, he's my big brother. You know, we don't have this kind of relationship as such, you know, we're, we're blokes. Um, and uh, he, he did that. And like, when he was getting undressed, I had to kind of help him a bit, which again, is all a bit awkward, really. I mean, it's, we weren't discussing what was happening, but I, I was aware of what I was doing. I was helping him to do some of the things he couldn't do so well. Um, anyway, we got him into his gown, and I was carrying, I remember putting his stuff into a plastic bag, and I had his, his, my, his trainers in my fingers. I remember that as well. And um, I said to this, what happens now then? What do I do? Because I've, I've got all this stuff here. You know, we, you know, what happens? I don't know. And they said, well, he's definitely going to be admitted. Um, so yeah, we'll let you know which war he's going to go on to. He'd be, he'd be ready about four o'clock. So it's probably about three o'clock now. So bear in mind, he's walked in at 12. It's about three now. He's off for his ultrasound on his gallbladder, gallstones. Um, and I've got his, his, his stuff in a bag. So I said, well, okay, I'll go down to the canteen and I'll wait. And he said, okay, good idea. So I rang Manuela. said, look, you know, Mark's staying in. Um, so you best come back, you know, drop off so for the babysitters and we'll, we'll sort out our plan. Everything will be fine. I'll go back to Cardiff. And everything will be as it, as it was before. So let, let's work this next hour or so out. So that's what happened. She came back to the hospital. Um, we were sat downstairs joking about how much Mark's going to hate all this. You know, the fact that you know, he's in hospital, the attention, having to explain what's going on, all that kind of stuff. Um, and about uh, quarter to five, whatever, we said, we said, let's go up to the ward and see if he's there. So um, that's what we did. We went up to the ward and we got there just as he was arriving. He's on the trolley and he's been taken into the, the, the room and on the trolley. But he struggled. I, he noticeably struggled to get from the, the trolley to the bed, which again, I thought was unusual, but not something I was flagging up. I thought, I thought he was not cooperating because they were saying to him, like, do this, do that. And he wasn't doing it. And even you say, go as far as to say, possibly he was masking something, goofing around, you know, so typical kind of like, you know, bloke out of his comfort zone. I'm getting more embarrassed about him than saying what's going on. Then why, why are you doing this? Cooperate, just get on the, you know, whatever. I'm taking sort of their side, if you like. Um, excuse me a second. So yeah, it gets onto the bed and the trolley leaves the room. And I, and again, his behavior, it was markedly changing. He, he, first thing he said was something like, uh, put your phones down, come off the phones, stop telling people what's this or that or the other, close the window. But he's on like the fifth floor of a hospital. The windows aren't open. You know, he's, we don't have our mobile phones. It was very strange behavior. So I called the nurse and said, look, you know, 
is he all right? Because he doesn't seem quite himself. Um, I don't know. I'm not a little bit concerned about the way he's being brought back to the to, to, to the ward here. Are you going to do anything with him now? And she said, oh, "I'll be I'll be back in in a second. Um, and by now, his um, his breathing had noticeably sped up a bit. So I started then to go into kind of uh, calm him down mode. I thought he was having a panic attack. I mean, as my as a lay person, I thought this guy, you know, my brother, he's having a panic attack. He's, he he needs something to calm his breathing down. So I was saying all those things to him, and, you know, slow to calm down. You're in the right place. All that all, all, all that kind of stuff. And um, again, he said something to like you know, come away from the window to Manuela, but she was at the foot of the bed, and, um, and he even looked at me and said, sort of nodded to the corners and say, "Who's that over there?" And when I looked around, there was not, there wasn't anybody there. I thought this is just getting weirder for me now, and this whole situation is getting very strange. And then he produced, um, sorry, the memories are quite vivid when I talk about it, but he produced like a white froth. So I wiped that away, and like again in my own mind, I'm thinking, well, he hasn't based on nothing. He hasn't eaten for a few days, so maybe it's a bit of some acid on his stomach or something. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of reasons of how he is, how he is, because I don't know what's going on. But I did call a nurse again. Say, look, I'm worried about his breathing. Can you, can we calm him down a bit? Um, I, you know, he, I think he's going into some kind of anxiety or panic attack. And the nurse looked at him and said, "Okay, what I'll do is I'm going to pop the oxygen mask onto him. I think you know, we'll just give him a little bit of help with his, with his breathing. Um, so that's that's what I'll do." And um, that, that, that should calm him down a bit. Um, at this point, and it's still only five o'clock, bear in mind, Mark's walked in at 12. I realise, though, that I haven't gone back to Wales yet. But more importantly, I hadn't rung my parents and told them I'm running late or why, et cetera, or any of these reasons why I, I, you know, I've been in, uh, out of communication. So I said to this, OK, while you're doing that, should I pop down and make a quick phone call? He said, yeah, not a problem, love. You know, go down to the car park because you know, there's no reception up here, as you've probably worked out. Uh, and yeah, this I'll, I'll sort them out. And when you come back, we'll have some more information for you. It'll all be sorted. So I left Manuela there, left the nurse and my brother on the bed. Um, I went down to the car park. It's about 10 past five. And I rang my mother and said, look, I'm running a bit late. Mark's got a, <laughs> looking back now, it's like quite comical. I said, he's got a bad belly. Because I've talked to my mum, they, they, you know, they're, they're old people. They, they, you know, they were in their 70s then and 80s now. Um, I said, he got a bad belly. He's, you know, he's seen the doctor. He's been sent to hospital. Very basic communication. Nothing to worry about. Um, I'll give you a call back when I've spoken to doctors and I, and I know more, which is exactly what I think anybody would have said and exactly what they would have expected to hear. I'll tell you what I know more. So um, so I'm telling him, I'm downstairs in the car park telling him everything's fine. Um, but obviously, up, upstairs on the ward, everything isn't fine. Um, and this is where you know, the, 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 the story gathers a, a, a load of pace. Because um, when I returned up to the ward, I remember it was quarter past five. Because I, uh, I remember looking at my, at, my, at my phone on the way up in the lift. Um, and as I came out of the lift door, I could only describe this as something as uh, as a scene from sort of Holby or, or Casualty. And when I see those scenes now, they still make me shiver a bit because it's so the drama was so similar to the reality of it that I could hear Manuela screaming. I could hear a buzzer of some kind or a siren. And um, and like I heard that someone say, move her out or move the family out or something like that. And they, was, uh, they were calling for a crash team. So I'd, I'd been gone for five minutes. And then that time I got back, my brother is that had the crash, crash team called and we're taken into a side room and told he's having some kind of episode, a, a fit or a seizure or something. And they're going to work on him and sort him out, but nothing to worry about, you know, stay where you are. 
and somebody will come and speak to you in a bit. It was, it's about to say half past five now. We waited a short while, probably till about six-ish. <clears throat> and a nurse came in and said, you know, don't worry, guys. You know, they're, they're sorting him out. They're settling him down. Nothing to worry about, you know. Um, somebody will come back and speak to you in a second. And, and the seconds went on. You know, it seemed like a very long time we were there. It probably wasn't in reality, but <clears throat> it felt like a long time. Um, but we waited and then somebody else came to see us. And this time it wasn't the nurse we'd, we'd, we'd been dealing with. It was a male doctor. <clears throat> and I don't remember his name, but I do remember him saying he was Dr. Whoever from the surgical team. And I remember thinking straight away, why are you coming to talk to us? Because um, my brother's got a bad belly. He's got a, you know, Basically, not in a mean way. I didn't. Even, I didn't articulate it. But I think, what's it got to do with you? Where's, where's the nurse gone? Um, <clears throat> and uh, he said, "Yeah, I'm from the surgical team, and uh, we looked at the scans of your brother. And from a surgical perspective, there's nothing we can do for him as a surgical team. Um, there's no perforations, no bleeds. There's no intervention that we can make um, to help your brother. But I can tell you, he's got a very, very." Uh, gravely he's very gravely ill you know uh, and uh we moved him in up to uh, intensive care where we are currently helping him to breathe so i i was like oh okay how how's this happened <laughs> you know what's going on he had a bad belly and something like what's going on what, what, what's, what's happened and he said we'll take you up to, up to the ward now the, the intensivist is going to come and talk to you we'll take you up to the ward so that's what we did i remember um on the walk to the ward saying to the doctor, when you say you're helping him to breathe, do you mean that he's he can breathe for himself but not very well, so you're helping him? Or are you breathing for him because um, he can't breathe? I mean, you, you know, what's, what's going on? Is, 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 he, is, he, is he on life support or something? <clears throat> I, I'm thinking I've got to make another phone call now. That's what I'm thinking in my mind. The, the information I was planning on giving now is going to be very different. So... I remember him saying, um, no, uh, your brother is, is in a coma. He's in an induced coma. Um, and his organs are struggling. And he's fully ventilated. And he, so, he, yeah, in, in, in essence, he's, he's on life support. I was like, oh, right. I, well, what, what, what's happened? Because he, he was fine. Like, it's only seven o'clock. And he was, uh, they said, he has a very, very aggressive infection. That, that kind of shocked me a bit because I understand the infection. But I didn't think infection made people this ill, especially brother. You know, my brother is 40, 41. Um, <clears throat> yeah, very aggressive infection. Sepsis wasn't mentioned. Um, and at the moment, he has a 50-50 chance of survival. I imagine they're thinking, they're thinking what? No, he literally, I saw him yesterday. I saw him a couple of hours ago. He's walked in at 12. And now he's had something happened. Um, now he's in intensive care. I've just rang my mum saying he's fine. What do I do now? I said, you know, is he gonna I said, is he gonna die? Because like I said, my parents live in Cardiff, you know, my Wellness family live in Italy. <clears throat> what do I need to do? You know, should I should I call my parents? I said they don't drive. Um, I gotta get him to do I need to get him to London? And he didn't, he wouldn't advise me either way, but I I, I knew enough to know he, he wasn't gonna deter me from doing it. And that was enough for me. So I thought, okay. I went to see Mark. I thought, wow. And I knew, oh God, you know, you just, I, I never, I, I may have been in intensive care once before in my life, but it, it, you will know, you know as medics or whatever, and, and, and doctors, nurses, and all know what it's like in there. But when you're walking cold from the streets to see somebody you've seen somewhere earlier, it's really, that's enough to make you ring your mum and dad and say something's not right without even having to know anything else. That's enough. 
because I think this guy looks terrible, you know, and I, I, in my mind, they need to come and see, they've got to come and see him. So I went down to Rick to ring them again. It was quarter past 20 past seven. So I say he's walked in at 12. I rung them at five, saying everything's fine. And that's why, and, and I remember saying this to <clears throat> previous people that when I talk about, or think about sepsis and this phone call, uh, it, it makes me describe sepsis as a car crash condition because my phone call to my mum and dad next, and then the phone call to my sister, especially who I hadn't made any phone calls to yet at all, but just like car crash phone calls, Mark's had an accident on the M4. This is happening. You're going to have to come and see him. That's what the conversation was like, because <clears throat> I can't sugarcoat it. I can't say everything's fine because now I know it's not. And, it, and my mum couldn't quite take it in. So I was very, I told her exactly how it was. So I said, okay, I'll call you back in a second. I had to ring my sister to say, look, I rung mum and dad to tell them what's going on here with Mark. And I'm sorry to say this to you, but you're going to have to ring them as well and, and make sure they understand how serious this is. There's no sugarcoating it. They, they, I said, you have to make them understand because you're going to have to come to London. He's really, really unwell. You know, uh, uh, you know I'm not, you know, I didn't say I didn't think he's going to make it, but I said, he's really unwell. You've got to come to London. So that's what they did. My mum and dad, uh, my sister and brother-in-law and my nephews, they organised driving to London. Uh, they were on their way up to London when I went back to speak to the doctors about what happens next. And they, they said, you know, again, very aggressive infection, really, really concerned about his organs. Um, we're going to try him on some dialysis to support his kidneys. Um, what transpired was the episode he'd had earlier, that the fit or the convulsion was a heart attack. So he walked in at 12, fine as I thought. Um, not so well when I saw him at two, but not really seriously unwell. And at 5.15, he's had a cardiac arrest, having walked in at 12. That timeline is frightening. Um, and because of that, you know, he said he is, again, 50-50, but what we can tell you is we're treating him as, as best as we can. Nothing's going to change at the moment. Um, he will be in here. We know he'll be here a long while. Whatever happens, he's going to be here a long while. So the best thing you guys can do is go home, get some rest. We weren't far away, only a mile or so away. Go home, get some rest, come back tomorrow, bring some you know, bits of your, you know, clothing, whatever you need for Mark, et cetera, et cetera. And it all made sense. They're treating him. They weren't expecting any response immediately. Um, they didn't know what the infection was, um, but they were treating him with um, broad spectrum antibiotics, what, what they said, the bleach, or something along those lines they referred to it as. Um, <clears throat> so that's what we did. It was about nine o'clock now, I suppose, a bit later. So we still haven't been there you know, that long, relatively. But then we left the hospital to go back to pick up Sophie from the babysitter's I'm sorry for the level of detail, but it's all it's all part of this, the impact of this kind of the story. There's, there's many players. So we, so we picked up um, Sophie from the babysitters, had a quick chat with them. And even when we were talking to them, we were saying he's unwell. And it was all very much, oh, you'd be fine. Go, let us know how you go, etc. And that's what we thought, you know. You know that, so we took Sophie home. Um, we put her to bed. Um, we had a cup of tea or whatever. And while I was upstairs uh, settling, settling down, um, I rang my partner to say, look, I'm, I'm, I'll stay here tonight. And this is what's going on. Um, but, you know, I think it's best I stay at, my, at Mark's house tonight just to be close by, just in case. I finished that phone call. <clears throat> it's coming up to midnight now. Manuela comes running back down the stairs. She's put Sophie to bed and the hospital rang her up already and said, there's been a change in Mark's condition and you need to come back to the hospital. 
So that's 12 hours after he's walked in. He's had a cardiac arrest at quarter past five. He's in intensive care on life support. And now we're being called back just at midnight. It's 12 hours. It's all that's passed in this, in, in this time. <clears throat> but of course, it's midnight in London. And even if it was midnight in Cardiff, it wouldn't have made much difference because we still would have had to have gone pretty much straight away. But our return to the hospital now, we have to take Sophie with us because she's only three. And where else can you put a three-year-old at midnight anywhere? But certainly in London, where you don't really know anyone um, to leave a baby or your baby with. Um, so I remember uh, something I've expressed before. You remember, you remember the funniest things is that I, Sophie was fast asleep. And we could put her into the pushchair and she was sleeping like a log. And I, was, I remember being very thankful for how big black cabs are in London, at the back of them, that you can lift the, the, the pram or pushchair into the back with no, no problem at all. You haven't got to collapse anything straight in and, and sit in there as well while you go to the hospital. So she's still asleep. I remember being grateful for that at the time. I remember Manuela saying to me in the back of the taxi, and I'm very, very, as you can probably tell, very rarely a lost for words. But Manuela said to me, this is it, isn't it? And I, and I said, I had no answer. How could I answer that question? I didn't know. I didn't feel good about it. But I just said, look, let's get there and, 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 and see, see what will happen, what's going on. I mean, let, let's see. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we got to the Lewisham again. We were able to wheel, wheel Sophie through the back uh, corridors, still asleep in the pram. And uh, push her into a little side room where she's continued to sleep, thankfully. Um, <clears throat> while the doctor who I'd spoken to earlier was taking us through what had happened in the last hour or so. And what had happened then was uh, Mark's dialysis machine, or, or not the dialysis machine, Mark's ability to function with the dialysis machine wasn't good enough. I think they said it was. It, it was starting to clog. So they couldn't, I guess it means they couldn't get the blood. I don't know, as I said, not medical. They couldn't get the blood pumped through at the level they would like to for in order for it to be effective. So they say, this isn't really working for him. So, we, we, the, so we've got problems now because we, we're struggling to support his kidneys. Um, <clears throat> and he hasn't really responded to much. Um, he's on quite a high end of most of the things we're giving him. So when we talked, and I remember this conversation again vividly, he said, when we talked to you about odds earlier, about his chance of survival, we're now thinking in terms of odds against him surviving. And I remember saying to him again, like, you know, well, what are they? You know, you, you, if we're talking odds, it was 50-50 before. Are we 60-40? Are we 70-30? 80-20? You know, where are we in the odds? You know, like, and I was getting nothing back. I think, well, you started the odds conversation. And I'm getting up to 90-10 now, and I'm getting nothing back. And I'm thinking 90 to 90, you know, 90 to 10, 9 to 1, they're not good, they're not good odds. You know, if you're a betting man, you're not snapping those up. So I'm thinking, okay, this is not this is not going to end well. You know, this is not going to end well. I just tell. And um I went to, to T Mark then and uh, I noticed that um his shins was looking quite black. And I thought, oh, I've seen. I've not seen this before, but I remember my mum saying about her sister who died of septicemia a few years previously, how her body had changed colour. I remember, I never saw it, but I remember her saying that. And I, and I thought, God, she's dead, right? She didn't survive. I'm thinking, he's going to die. And my mum and dad are on their way to the house where we're not no longer at, because um, we're back at the hospital. And when they see him, they're going to know the outcome. And I've, I can't give them false hope. So 
what I talk about what sepsis is to me, and it, it, it is that kind of, um, you know, this car crash thing where everything moves really quickly, but you, but you don't quite understand, um, or, you know, multiple organ failure, you know, alarms going off. This, in, in, in my experience, it's not everybody's experience, in my experience. Um, and then having to ring your parents or text your sister again to say, we're not at the, you know, when they're close enough to be safe to tell them, we're not at the house anymore. So when you're close, can you come straight to the hospital? Because we need to, you need, I think it's probably best when you see him first. We're still here, basically. We've come, we have to come back. <clears throat> so the other thing that's actually was to me was then having to, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> meet, you know, my parents, my sister in a car park at three o'clock in the morning to explain to them the severity about what they, they're, they're walking into. Because, you know, and in reality, they, he's probably not going to make it. And and they're amazing. You know, I don't know how they did it, but their ability to, to cope with that um, and then go up and see him was quite remarkable. Um, and, you know, and we had the same conversations then as a family rather than just me and Manuela. Um, and Manuela, you know, poor thing, the wife was like, she couldn't take this in. She was asking questions around, you know, you know anything that, that, that suggests it might not be what they thought it was. Um, but they, they were saying, look, you know, he's, he's on the high end of everything. We're doing our very best. And the next few hours are crucial, but we can't really give him any more than what he's getting at the moment, but we will do our very, very best for him. So this is now on the, well, it's early hours, but it's on, this is the Friday now. We're well into the you know, early hours of the Friday morning. So um, we stayed with him for a while. My mum and dad say they, they, they're not the youngest people. So they went back to, to Manuela's house and we stayed in the hospital and they came in there and they had, they had some sleep. Um, and they came back in. We had a day of like seeing what might happen, what wouldn't happen. We were able to, on the Friday afternoon, call around some of Mark's more local friends and tell them, you know, what was going on. So again, this whole process of making the phone calls and people coming and going, having to try to explain what was happening when you didn't really know yourself, but, you know, other than, you know, it was bleak. Um, and I remember then a conversation late on the Friday night, going early into hours of Saturday, where they said, look, you know, we really, we, we really can't give him any more. Um, and what they said was, and they, they, were, they were brilliant, they, they did a really good job. But what they, what they said up was how they described it was that all of the sort of treatment we're giving him to help him is now getting to the stage where it might begin to harm him. Um, so it's, it's what we're going to consider doing now is um, withdrawing the treatment. And not withdrawing the care. They didn't there. That was very clear. They weren't withdrawing care. They, the, the care was amazing. Round the clock. It was never wasn't a time where there wasn't someone by his side. They didn't withdraw any care. But they, I think we would have to consider withdrawing, you know, with consent, obviously, but, you know, um, withdrawing the treatment. So that's, you know, as a family, what we agreed to do. I mean, it's chances of survival, but very, very, very slim. I mean, to non-existent. What he would have, what Mark we would have got back had he survived, you know, he was severely damaged by now, and 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 uh, he, he wasn't going to survive. So unfortunately, you know, they they switched everything off and they unplugged everything. And Mark, having walked in at uh, midday on the Thursday, uh, died by the Saturday lunchtime at about one p.m. And you know, leaving, you know, obviously, his family, 
uh, uh, when I was an overnight 35-year-old widow and, and a single mum. And it was just like you know, a, a devastating thing and really hard to get your head around when you when you don't really know what's happened. And I remember talking to the, the, the intensivist and saying, look, you know, was he really unlucky? You know, was he one in a million? You know, what went wrong? And he just said, look, you know, it doesn't matter what the history of the person is really when they, when they or the age of them, when they arrived to me, as Mark arrived, you know, his chances of survival were never great um, because he was, he was so unwell when we got him. Um, and I was like, wow, I did, okay, fine. You just take that. You know, it was well explained. You know, we had no issues around, no, no issues. So we left, um, you know, my brother, you know, being the awkward bugger that he was, he managed to die on the, on the, it was, that's the funny thing actually, because it, it was coming up again. It's his 10th anniversary this year, which again is a big Queen's party, the Jubilee of some kind. So it would have been the previous Jubilee to this one um, that he would have died on to 10 years ago. So whatever it is, whatever it is this time, it was the last one. So it was a, four, a three or four day bank holiday or something. So we couldn't go back to the hospital to get Mark's death certificate until the Wednesday. He died on the Saturday. But I couldn't go back to the administrative bit of the hospital until the Wednesday. So we had to wait all of that time. Um, no one's fault. That's just what it was. Um, <clears throat> and that's when I went back on the Wednesday and I picked up the death certificate and I remember saying, I remember looking at it across the desk, I seen this teeny little word upside down as well. And it said primary cause of death when I turned it around it was sepsis. And I said, never heard of it. It hadn't been mentioned. I never heard of it. I'd heard of septicemia. I didn't know they were linked. I, I, it was an old person's illness in my mind. And that's, that's what he died of, sepsis. I was like, wow, what is that? So I didn't immediately go away. I think I have to find out what this is. You know, we've got like my mum and dad, my sister, the whole family, Manuela, Sophie, she's a baby. She's three and a half years old. They all, that needed to be sorted out. And that's what we were doing. That's where all the focus was um, around that. So it was, it was a while later when I actually started to look at what sepsis was, when somebody asked me about it. And I was a bit embarrassed. So I didn't really know. <laughs> um, I was like, God, my brother's died of something. I, I, don't, I, I don't know what it is. Um, so I, I did what everybody does when they don't know something. I Googled it um, and I Googled sepsis and it popped up. And then and uh, actually somebody asked me about a charity around sepsis. I Googled sepsis charity first and foremost. And I eventually found like third or fourth on the list below a couple of academic papers um, that you, because this is going back a few years and they weren't an established charity really, was, was the UK Sepsis Trust. And I clicked on that. And when it opened up, um, and this is like it's quite funny in a way that the first thing it said was at that time um sepsis is a body's reaction to an infection um and thirty-seven thousand people a year die from it which is more than breast bowel and prostate cancer combined i remember that being the banner headline on this thing i was like wow hang on a minute reaction to an infection my brother i know about infections thirty-seven thousand people a year I asked the doctor if it wasn't a million. Like this, this doesn't sound as kind of um, as sort of obscure or as unlucky or whatever, whatever words you want to use in this context as as what I thought it was. So what is it? I know infections. I've heard of infections. I know what infections are. Um, how can your reaction to an infection be so sort of fatal? And then I looked at what the symptoms were. The other thing I had flashed up on this like the 1970s sort of style website. It was an awful website. It was terrible. It was like my grandmother's bedroom. It was, like, it was terrible. It was all, everything was wrong with it. But apart from the information, which was 
what I was looking for. And then it had the symptoms of sepsis. And I, um, and it was done as an acronym. And this is where I think it, it, all things start to hit home. And then I'll come back to behaviors in a second. Um, but the acronym for sepsis that they had was slurred speech or confusion. Now, my brother, I wouldn't say he was slurring, but he was definitely confused. I didn't mean nothing to me. I didn't know confusion was linked to infection. I know that now. <laughs> it's a real key indicator. As you guys will know that there, somebody who is confused, who's a marked sort of age group, that should be important. But I didn't know that. It was, it was useless in that situation. Extreme shivering or muscle pain. I asked if he was in pain. He said, yeah, he did. And he, he was heavy legged because I, I had to help him get undressed. Um, P, passing no urine in a day. Now, I would never have asked. I wouldn't ask anyone that. You know, I, I wouldn't have certainly would have asked my brother, but it wasn't something I thought to ask. Um, but I wouldn't have known to ask that, but I would do now. Severe breathlessness. I was saying earlier how my the panic attack, or I thought it was a panic attack when lay persons, you know, um, the, the diagnosis, a panic attack, he was severely breathless. I, I would describe him as chasing breath, if anything. I was severely chased, uh, breathless. I, it feels like you're going to die. Now, that is something apparently that survivors have said. My brother never said that because he didn't survive. So it's not about how he felt. It happened. And then skin mottled or discolored was the last thing. Um, and yeah, it was late for Mark, but he was, his, his skin uh, was starting to, to change color. So he had lots of these things going on. I remember when I, I when I got this, all these symptoms thing on this website, I fired it around all my friends saying, look, you know, you got to, can you share this with me? Because this is really important. And one of my mates who was at the hospital that day, he's a techie guy and he's quite scientific, came back to me privately and said, I remember when I got to the hospital that you asked, I asked you what had happened. And he said, you know, I, I, the way you were describing your brother is really pretty well covered in that symptoms card you've just sent me. And I, I, wasn't, I hadn't done that because I was trying to prove any points. I didn't remember, I don't remember the conversation I had with him in the hospital. I had so many conversations, but he's only had one with me. So he remembered it. And he said, how you described him? It's not far off. Well, that is saying there. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> right. Could, could, have, could this have been different? What could have been different? What could have been, what was missing? What, why did it, for instance, in my own mind, what, what was missing on that day that could have helped Mark? It might not, not bound to have helped him, but could have helped him. So if I could, so if I pieced it together, how would I like that day to be different? What would the, what would be different? What would be the behaviors that they want to be different? So the first one, when I think back over it, was when Mark accessed healthcare in the community, when he saw the nurse, when he saw the GP the first time, he was told to go home to take some fluids, you know, rest up, don't worry about eating, etc. He was told to do that. So that's what he did. My brother from the same generation as me would be one of those where, and again, it sounds like I'm not trying to make light of it, but when we were kids, if I went to school and was unwell for a day, my mum, my mum was a caretaker, a cleaner, not a medic, not a nurse, but she would say, you've got the 24 hour bug. And if I was ill the next day, she'd be like, I know what that is. You've got the 48 hour bug. And that's how, we would work out our basic illnesses. You've got a 48-hour bug. Two days off school, you're going to be fine. Mark's head, 
48 hour bug, even though it was a bit longer than that already in his mind, waiting to get better. So if the health professional had said at the time, go home, do A, B and C. But if something changes, if there's a change in your condition, do something else, come back, ring that, do this. He may have done that. I can't, I have no way of knowing. He may have done something on the Tuesday rather than the Thursday. And that 48 hours for him could have been really important. So I know since that um, sepsis is a very time sensitive condition. Uh, I know that the intensivist said he got to me too late. And he, and he, and he has a part to play in that because he didn't know to do that. My own behaviors, when I came into the equation, what could I have done differently as an advocate? What I could have done, if I knew then what I know now, and this is why this is so important to be aware of these signs, is if I had one of those symptoms cards or a knowledge of what to look out for in an otherwise healthy individual, my role in that A&E, rather than being the sort of passive, mildly kind of uncomfortable um, lay person, what I should have said was, with the knowledge I have now, I saw my brother yesterday. He wasn't, he, he was okay. You know, he was very much himself. We were chatting, we were talking. He's very different now. He's a, he's a young man. He's confused. He's, 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 he's in pain. I've asked him if he's been to the toilet and he doesn't know. So I could have asked that question if I knew to ask it. I could have had that information at my fingertips had I asked him. I said, he's breathless. You know, can you explain that to me? And I mean, I, you know, because because yesterday he was fine. Could he have an infection? Could he possibly have sepsis? Because can, can you at least consider the fact that what's wrong with him with his belly isn't the thing? It, could it be something else? And I wouldn't have been trying to be, you know, a smart ass. <laughs> you know, I would have been using the tools at my disposal, and I wouldn't have been trying to be an expert on medicine or diagnosis or any of those things. I would have only been offering the expertise on my brother, because I was the least qualified person to do anything medical in that room that day. But the one thing I knew the most about that I was the expert on was Mark. But I didn't know that what power that potentially was worth. And that's for me is what this is about. I will never get the chance to have that conversation with that nurse again about my brother. And maybe I'll have it with a nurse about somebody else, if I'm really lucky, well, they are, uh, you know, that I'm in that situation again. But that doesn't mean nobody else can have those conversations. And that is essentially, in a nutshell, what this, why, why I became involved with raising awareness around sepsis. Um, you know, say it's the numbers that people that die per year. I think there's, God, there's 250,000 people affected by it. Around 48,000 of those die. But I said earlier, is more than breast, bowel, prostate cancer, road traffic accidents, HIV and AIDS combined, more than lung cancer, one-to-one, more than heart attacks, one-to-one. Um, and some of those are preventable. Not all of them. I mean, we'd be idiots to think they were all preventable. They're not. But some of them are. The community tragedies like my brother, um, and I can name others, you know, William Mee, Chloe Christopher, um, Rachel Day. There's, 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 there's lots and lots and lots of them. Um, Skylar Whiting, very local, all these people who didn't know to ask the questions. And, you know, and I think in that situation, uh, just been able to say to someone, I know this person, they seem different. Could they have an infection? Could that be sepsis? It's a very, very simple question. 
and it's a very it could be quite a straightforward thing to look at and answer they don't have an infection so it's not that don't worry they're unwell but don't worry it's not that um so that's what we're trying to get to is to get sepsis to be it is an emergency illness it's getting more recognized as an emergency illness um but it needs to be treated like one across the board so we would love it to be treated um like cardiac arrest um like stroke um, which is to say you know, another very time critical condition where information you can give is so important. Hence the FAST campaign. It's so important the role that the advocates can play in that. And to be, you know, if we were really successful uh, in sort of campaigning and awareness and education, that people would think about sepsis in the same way they think about meningitis. I know it's a vaguer condition than that. Uh, it's harder to diagnose than that. But to think about it in the same way and respond in the same sort of way. And that means in the community, through them recognising it, playing their our part, um, and in healthcare, in playing your part. So the, and these are the things, that, you know, if uh, nurses will be, or training nurses will be listening to this, the, the, what I would say was, you know, just remember the role that, that the, the parent or the advocate or the friend can play, and the information that they have could be really important to what you're trying to work out. And you could be the first person that, that anyone speaks to about this. And the first person is the most important one because you can press the, the buzzer. You can really start that ball rolling. And it's, as I say, it marks condition. I know he spent a lot of time in the community, but he walked in the hospital at five, uh, that toy midday on the Thursday. He was in cardiac arrest by quarter past five and, and a multiple organ failure by seven. And he was dead by the Saturday. He was 41 years old, married with a three-year-old daughter. And that's why you use his story from the community through the hands he went through, the hospital corridors he went through, and he never came out. Well, not the way he would have wanted. And that's why I think this marks a really good story for um, the, the, the timeline of all that. He was in the community. He, he sought health care. He went to triage, and he was triaged. He, he went to a ward. He went to ITU. And he didn't come out. He went through every conceivable pair of healthcare hands in a way. And this isn't about blame. This is about, you know, awareness and the best, what's best can come from this. We don't want loads more marks. We do. We want him to be alive. <laughs> you know what I mean? Anyway, we, want, we, want, we want marks to be, still be here. So that's what this is, this is, this is about really, is giving people the best chances or the best outcomes and preventing families going through um, what we had to go through or what numerous other families have had to go through if it's a, if it's preventable. Terence, it's, it's amazing. And, you know, just thinking the questions that you, you've answered so many questions for me before I even got a chance to put them there. And I, I just think, you know, thinking about, you know, your, your reflection on things that happened, obviously there was, there was no way for you to know at the time, um, you know, to, to say anything or for Mark to say anything, but now as time goes on, we develop, we get education, we learn about different conditions and those are the important lessons to learn, aren't they, you know? Um, like I said, you, you've answered so much for us. The, the only one question that I really want to sort of put to you, I think, um, after hearing your story, and, you know, it, it gets to me every time I listen to it, to be honest, and every time because we've met on multiple occasions, isn't it, is how are you all doing as a family now? Because you do incredible work and let's know how you're all doing. Well, it's, it's it's as 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 I mentioned earlier, this was um, it was ten years ago. Come June, June June the second will be ten years. Um, so everybody, you know, everything has changed as as a family. I mean, Sophie, who was it was uh, 
only coming up four then um, is now in high school. You know, she's, she's a grown up nearly. She's, a, she's not a child anymore. Um, you know, uh, my, my sister is now a, a, is recently, she's a grandmother. <laughs> you know, so she wasn't then. Her boys at the time were, I mean, Owen, who's the father of, uh, of, the, of the newborn was, was was at the hospital as well. It was a poor experience for him as a young man, but he's now the father of that baby, you know? And it's like, so life goes on and you, know, you have to, it it takes a long time and grieving is a difficult process. And it's like, and so you just, I think you should learn to to carry it lighter. Um, but in short, thank you for the question. And the answer is we're all very well. Um, and we're all still here and uh, we've survived COVID thankfully as well. Um, largely unaffected by it all. Um, so no, um, we've managed to pick up the pieces and and get on with our lives. And um, it, it's not you know, it's, we and we, and we always remember Mark very fondly with a smile. But I think as as a family, we're we're strong and we're good and we're here and uh, and we're all very well. And I'm I'm getting married um, in in December. Um, you know, so I've met you know, the whole my, my life has changed inexplicably you know, since then. I mean, I was living in in London and. I didn't see my family quite so much. I wasn't involved in this sort of stuff at all. Um, so there's been a remarkable change in in, in the the way we're all we're now living our lives to probably what we were before. So um, yeah, we're we're all very well. Thank you. Oh, good. I'm sure everyone listening will wish you congratulations. You know, on your wedding and um, and just thanks again so much for sharing your story with us. Thanks, Terence. Bye now. So a huge thank you to Terence for sharing his and his family's story with us. Um, I'm sure you'd agree it's extremely powerful. And, you know, I just think you have to commend Terence on the incredible work that both he and the UK Sepsis Trust do in terms of increasing public awareness of the condition. Now we're going to learn more about the pathophysiology of sepsis and over to Paul Morgan. Hiya, I'm with Dr. Paul Morgan, um, who's kindly agreed to answer some questions about sepsis. So, hi, Paul, how are you? Hi, Ricky, I'm not too bad, thanks. Can you just tell us a bit about yourself? Right, so uh, I've recently retired uh, as a consultant in intensive care medicine in uh, Universal Hospital Wales in Cardiff. And as part and parcel of my role, I was the sepsis lead for the health board. And uh, as a... I, I, I've, I've retired now, but I've returned to a, a part-time role working in the post-anesthetic care unit. So we still see, uh, you know, some cases of uh, post-op sepsis. Fantastic. Thanks. So um, what we did, the listeners will have heard um, Terence's um, story. And to sort of give a bit of background about what went on, I'm going to ask you a few questions, if that's all right. No. Just, just starting out, can you just tell us what sepsis is, please? Okay, well... There's an official definition of sepsis, which just says that basically uh, sepsis is a dysregulated host response to infection uh, that injures injures your own t- or tissues and organs. Um, put it put it in a nutshell: you if you develop an infection, your own immune system will respond to that infection in, in an attempt to control it. And there's certain pathways and chemical signals that happen within the body as part and parcel of that response that are, you know, primarily there to help you respond with and clear up infection. In some people, for reasons that aren't entirely well known, that response goes haywire. And rather to the point where the 
response to the infection that your body's providing becomes you know, out of control. And what can happen in that situation is that some of the things your body is doing to respond to infection get exaggerated. So, for instance, uh, one of the classical things that happens is you would normally uh, improve the blood supply to an area of infection to allow the white blood cells and uh, things like antibodies to reach the site of an infection. And there are certain chemical processes that allow that to happen. The problem is in some people that response doesn't stay localized to the site of an infection, but it becomes a whole body response. And then your blood vessels open up everywhere. And then what will then happen is your blood pressure will start to fall. When your blood pressure starts to fall, the big problem then is that the supply of oxygen to other vital organs becomes compromised. And so, you, you know, those organs start to struggle and can even fail. And, of course, once, once your organ systems start to fail, you've got a bit of a problem. And uh, you're going to become quite seriously in it and could even die as a consequence of that. Absolutely. So, so when you get into organ failure, these are the, the, the very sick patients who end up in critical care. And yeah, yeah. Can you tell us about sort of like some of the therapies that you, you might have to do to help with, okay. with this? Uh, well, I mean, one of the first things to do is to try and actually recognise this syndrome of sepsis in terms of how it presents to, you know, a frontline clinician, you know, the doctor or the nurse, for instance, in your GP surgery or in your A&E department or on an acute ward in the hospital. And if you can recognise the sort of uh, pattern, uh, you know, as I say, the low blood pressure or a fast heart rate, that sort of thing, then you need to start instituting treatment pretty quickly in order to nip this response in the bud, as it were. Okay, so things we would talk about, generally speaking, are doing things like uh, making sure we've got some intravenous access, so we can give some fluid, okay, giving some antibiotics fairly urgently. But before we give the antibiotics, we should take some uh, blood specimens to try and grow the, the responsible bug that's caused the sepsis. Um, we would want to do things like measuring the effect on the body's organs and systems. For, for instance, doing things like uh, measuring how the kidneys are working by measuring the urine output. And I would often mean in putting a catheter into the bladder. Um, we'd want to measure the level of a substance in the blood called lactate, which uh, tends to indicate that there's... I would put it more loosely, a generalised badness, uh, rather than, you know, because there's, there's some discussion as to what that high lactate might actually mean. And it, it's probably not due to lack of oxygen in the affected organ, but to various other organ systems working in working at overdrive pace. Uh, so those are things we talk about. So we talk about giving oxygen as well. Okay? If, the, cause if the oxygen needs of the body are increased, then you're going to need to supply more oxygen. So we, you know, we do talk a lot about making sure the oxygen level is adequate. Okay. So we, it's often summarized in a package of care known as the sepsis six. Okay. Now the sepsis six was designed by a charity called the UK sepsis trust several years ago now. And it's been through various modifications and, Again, so one of the key features that there's now talking about with the sepsis 6 is getting senior clinical review. 
So that means, uh, you know, r- rather than just being the newly qualified doctor or the very junior nurse on the ward, it, once you recognise the the problem, get some get somebody you know who's been qualified for a number of years to make sure you're actually doing the right thing. Because it's it's one of the problems in that the symptoms and signs can overlap with other conditions, and you do need to try and rule those other conditions out. Because obviously the problem is, you, you know, you can give somebody a dose of antibiotics and you're probably not going to do a lot of harm, okay? But if you give somebody a course of antibiotics with, you know, three, four, five, however many days, and they don't need those antibiotics, so there's a different problem altogether, then you are potentially causing harm to that patient because you know, antibiotics can lead to... Um, allergic responses, they can lead to uh, things like uh, developing antimicrobial resistance, because you know, if you, don't, if you don't, don't need them, then actually you're just making the other organisms feed on the antibiotics almost. Okay. Um, and, you know, and, and ultimately, it's just a waste of money as well. So, uh, you know, all these things we have to, have to take into account. So, you know, we want to treat quickly, but we also then want to make sure having given those antibodies, actually we are doing the right thing. We're on the right right pathway. Because again, you know, if you're not if you're treating somebody for sepsis and the problem isn't sepsis, then there's the potential for harm to that patient as a, as a result of that. So that key thing of sepsis uh, sepsis six plus a senior clinician in yeah. the yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean as I within the latest version of the sepsis six from the UK Sepsis Trust. They've actually put that senior clinician review as one of the steps of the sepsis six now. Uh, there was a long conversation, probably run for a couple of years, between the sepsis trust and the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, or NICE, to give them, give them their short term, uh, where they came up with various uh, recommendations and standards, and ultimately agreed that the sepsis six should include this senior clinician review as, as one of its keys. Uh, steps, but I, think, but I think I think a lot of people probably don't realise that's in there, and are still working on uh, what I might call a more traditional view of the sepsis six, which is uh, the, you know, the oxygen, the fluids, the antibiotics, taking those cultures, measuring that urine output, and checking the lactate. So, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah, definitely. You, you mentioned earlier on that sometimes we we don't know why people some. Some people have an infection and they just get over that infection. Some people go on yeah. to develop sepsis. But there's are yeah. there some more at-risk groups or at-risk people. Yeah, yeah, def- definitely. You know, things which put people at risk is you know advancing age, or you know, or certainly the extremes of age. So obviously, uh, you know, newborn babies and very and very young babies are, are more at risk because their immune system had another chance to develop to you know to actually respond. To some in, some infections they might encounter. At the other end, inspector, as we get older, our immune systems become less good at responding to infection. And again, we've seen quite a lot of this in the in the COVID pandemic, where you know the elderly have suffered more and had worse outcomes from COVID than younger, fitter, healthier people. And there's even been some questions about their ability to respond to vaccinations as effectively. And again, that's because the immune systems, it, it, unfortunately, like all the rest of your body, starts to age and starts to become less less uh, good at what it's doing. Yeah, absolutely. But, yeah. So, so, I mean, the other risk categories then are anybody who's been um, put 
put uh, in what I call the immunocompromised category. So that's people who have got uh, who have been treated for various conditions uh, where they might be, for instance, let's, let's say they've had an organ transplant, so they're on drugs to suppress the immune system there, uh, or people who are needing steroids for a variety of other conditions. Uh, people with diabetes are less good at fighting infection, so they are at higher risk. So the, there are a number of things that are actually pretty common, surprisingly. Uh, and anything else which can affect the function of the immune system, even if it's only temporarily, like having, like having surgery, for instance. You know, surgery has an effect on the immune system and uh, makes you less able to cope with a, with a big infection. So all these things would raise your um, likelihood of diagnosing sepsis if, if your patient was in one of these categories. So I suppose for like any sort of, um, you know, students listening, any clinicians listening, uh, you know, junior clinicians listening, it's about thinking about those simple measures, like we said, but also yeah. thinking about those at-risk categories, yeah? Yes, definitely. Yeah. Um, in terms of, um, you know, how, how can we, because some of these things seem, you know, you mentioned COVID and that, and there's been a lot of talk about vaccines and stuff like that. Yeah. Would they, are they a useful tool in preventing sepsis? I mean, fundamentally, in order to develop sepsis, you have to have an infection as a starter. And, uh, you know, so obviously if you, can, if you can prevent infection through vaccination, then, you know, you, that, you, know you, you prevent that patient developing sepsis from that particular infection. Uh, you know, and again, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, say obviously COVID is very topical at the moment. Um, you know, the bad cases of COVID that we've seen in places like intensive care are undoubtedly sepsis due to a viral infection. And this is one of the problems is that, you know, sepsis can be caused by any infection, whether it's bacterial, viral, fungal, you know, uh, whatever. So, you know, it's, you know, the way, you, the, way you, the way the body responds is very variable, depending on what, what they face, whether they've seen that infection or something similar in the past. Uh, but clearly, you know, prevention is far better than cure in this setting. So uh, it, it's very important, for instance, you know, we have good aseptic technique during surgery or any practical procedures. Uh, so, uh, you know, changing dressings, uh, putting in uh, intravenous cannulae, central lines, that sort of thing. You know, good aseptic technique is probably one of the most important preventions. Um, one of the commonest infections we see in hospital is actually a urinary tract infection because somebody's got a catheter in their bladder. We call it a catheter-associated UTI. So it's important uh, that anybody who's got a, a urinary catheter in has the need for that catheter reviewed on a, on a daily basis and try and get that catheter out as soon as possible. Because otherwise, the, the, that uh, that tube is just a portal for infection, essentially. So all all these things are really important. You know, prevention, as I say, it's far better than cure. So let let's try and keep you know a a clean, healthy lifestyle. I mean, I'm not talking about going to the you know overboard and uh, you know wearing gloves everywhere and wash washing your hands thirty times a day, etc. But clearly, you know, you know, good you know basic personal hygiene is really important in everyday life uh, but obviously then in situations where that hygiene requirement is elevated you know for, obviously for instance you know working in a hospital you know actually dealing with patients you know good you know good hygiene is important and particularly when you're doing those procedures which potentially put the patient at risk of uh, developing an infection so as you know you know 
basic thing, you know, wash your hands regularly, good hand hygiene. Uh, and, uh, you know, when you're actually doing those practical procedures, you know, good aseptic technique. Absolutely. Can I, I'll do a couple more questions, Paul. This is brilliant. No, Thanks ever so much. Um, in terms of prognosis of sepsis, um, what's it like? And are we getting better with morbidity and mortality with regards to sepsis? Okay. I mean, that, that's opening the can of worms in itself. Because, I mean, one of the fundamental problems uh, is actually um, capture, capturing the data in the first place. You know, we've got a situation where, you know, 10 years ago, we thought there might be, you know, 37,000 37, deaths a year in the UK from sepsis. You know, and those, as data gatherings improved over the years, that figure went up into the, you know, in the 40,000 plus to the 50,000 plus. I think we're probably looking at somewhere around the 52,000 deaths a year mark. That's deaths. And the number of cases we think we see, uh, again, you know, 10 years ago, we were probably looking at just over 100,000 cases a year. You know, that went up fairly dramatically. Uh, to the point where we're looking at well over a quarter of a million cases of sepsis each year. So it, it's difficult to say whether we're better, worse, or indifferent in, in, on that basis. We may be, just be better at recognising and capturing the data. So, but clearly, uh, you know, what, we, what we can see is that patients who receive the sepsis sex, if it's done properly, uh, tend to do better. Okay. Clearly, as an, uh, at the other end of the spectrum, what we see is those who are developing sepsis and is not recognised and not treated in an appropriate timely manner, kind of really bad outcomes. And unfortunately, we have seen you know a number of uh, people who've been seriously uh, damaged by sepsis and, and have died, say 52,000 deaths a year. Most of those are going to be in those uh, categories we were, talking, we were talking about earlier on in terms of you know, being elderly, maybe having some other disease processes such as diabetes, et cetera. And again, data we've captured doing studies in Wales shows very much that the majority of people who develop sepsis and sadly die as a consequence do fall in that uh, more elderly population with, with the comorbidities. But, you know, we see every so, every so often, you know, and it often it hits the headlines these days, somebody who's young, fit and healthy developing sepsis, it's not recognised for some reason you know, the, or the presentation is delayed for whatever reason. The person, you know, the person themselves doesn't realise how ill they are. And we'd sadly see people, you know, losing limbs and even losing their lives in intensive care units because we've not been able to intervene quickly enough to stop that infection spreading and stopping the body's response spreading. Absolutely. Um, there was one sort of final question. Um, this is just anecdotal. It's funny, you know, I think when I, I started back years ago, um, you know, 20 years ago nursing, and um, when I would talk about sepsis to, pe to people on the street, to my family, they would always say, not you heard of it, septicemia. Do you mean yeah. septicemia? Yeah. But now yeah. That, that seems to have changed a lot. And what do you put that down to? Yeah, I think I think you're right there, Ricky. I think, uh, you know, again, even within the medical profession, um, you know, I say, I mean, I qualified as a doctor in 1985. And at that stage, we didn't even have a definition of what sepsis was or is. You know, various terms were bandied around as a septicemia, blood poisoning, uh, 
uh, you know, sometimes people call it sepsis, and often, and they often still do, you know, refer to something like chest sepsis or urosepsis, which is not terribly helpful. So it, it took a long time for people to come up with a definition of sepsis. I mean, we actually, you know, we didn't get the first, what I call proper definition of uh, sepsis until about, uh, I think it was about 1992. So, you know, I mean, I've been qualified a fair time by then, you know, seven, you know, seven years or so. And it, it's, it's been revised over the years. The most, the current definition was uh, published in February 2016. And, you know, things have been revised and simplified, and that's, that's good. Uh, so we now have, uh, you know, the clearly defi- clear definitions of what sepsis and what septic shock is. In terms of, you know, public knowledge, I think the campaigns run by the UK Sepsis Trust in, in, in mainly in England, uh, Wales, and to a certain extent, Northern Ireland, less than Scotland. In Scotland, they've hired an organisation called the Fiona Elizabeth Agnew Trust, who've been you know, obviously running a lot of sepsis uh, publicity campaigns as well. I think those campaigns have been quite successful at getting that word sepsis into, uh, into the public uh, language, should we say. And there's been really uh, useful examples of how that's um, been portrayed in, for instance, soap operas in Coronation Street. A couple of years ago, they had a big story based on a, a child with sepsis. And, uh, you know, and that's also been in other programs as well. So there is, you know, the publicity side of things has been helpful. I mean, uh, you know, get, as I get it, getting that terminology into the public domain, you know, uh, it's, it's been pretty successful to the point where you're actually always worried about becoming a victim of your own success. Because suddenly yeah. you've gone from nobody knowing what sepsis is to everybody knowing, everybody knowing what sepsis is and automatically label then any severe illness as sepsis. And, and that, of course, that can become counterproductive because you you don't think about what else it could be, and you just chuck in the antibiotics to you know potentially harm some people. So, you know, it's it's always a question now. We've had this two year period now because of the pandemic, where you know things have been a bit quiet on the publicity front. But again, you know, people have talked throughout about uh, you know severe COVID is viral sepsis due to you know the SARS CoV two infection. And now beginning to focus again on, you know, highlighting, you know, cases of sepsis. There's even been a couple in the news recently of young, you know, young people and children who died from sepsis through, you know, a failure to spot the, the diagnosis. Okay. So, we, you know, we're, we're trying now to think about, well, how can we once again raise that profile of sepsis? without frightening people and, uh, you know, without sort of making people's automatic response to any severe illness is, is a dose of antibiotic. So, you know, it's, it's, good. it's a tricky balance, I think, is the, is the, is the honest answer there. Um, how, how we get that worked through remains to be seen. I think, uh, you know, it could, you know, and again, one of the, you know, the key sort of features is, you know, could it be sepsis? And uh, not saying you know, you know, every severe illness is sepsis till proved otherwise. No, it's question is, could it be sepsis? You've still got to get to the you know doctors and nurses thinking, you know, well, it could be sepsis, but also, also it could be one of these other things. Like, you know, it could be somebody's having a myocardial infarction or, or what have or what have you. There's a reason for them to have low blood pressure. So, you know, the, it's, it's been used to bring that 
term into the differential diagnosis, whereas before it might have been uh, not thought about until it was too late. So, you know, good good stuff's happened. We've had a bit of bit of a sort of a pause. I think probably now we need to think. Well, okay, let's let's start talking again as uh, you know. Hopefully, things start to return to some you know degree of normality following following the pandemic. You know, think about what challenges we're going to be faced with going forward. Now, thinking about how we deal with the aftermath of sepsis. That's going to be one of the next big things we're going to have to deal with. So particularly all these people who've had COVID and are, you know, are labelled with terms such as long COVID, which is essentially the after effects that you see with sepsis of any origin. But obviously, you know, each particular infection affects people in different ways and will have its own particular problems to deal with. You know, the rehabilitation needs of people in, the, in this setting are exactly the same as anybody who's been acutely unwell in hospital with sepsis. You know, and you don't even have to get into intensive care to be left with some of the longer-term consequences. So a massive thank you to Terence and to Paul for contributing to this podcast. Um, if you'd like to learn more about sepsis, um, not just as a healthcare professional, but as a member of the public, please look at the UK Sepsis Trust website. It's fantastic resources on there. You can find about about more about the condition you can volunteer you can fundraise uh, there's also professional resources on there so please pay it a visit thanks so much for listening bye now